you never want to say somebody is the most special guest, but in this particular circumstance, that might be appropriate. So we have Adrian Lowe from the International Spine and Pain Institute, the individual who in many ways is behind everything we're offering here at Pain Reframed. This is Pain Reframed. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pain Reframed podcast. ISPI sponsors this podcast. Um, ISPI has been really a preeminent leader in moving pain science education forward, management of persistent pain forward, this entire area of practice forward. And certainly, Adrian Lowe is one of the strongest voices in this entire paradigm shift. If you've never had the chance to see Adrian Lowe speak live, I think that has to be on everybody's shortlist. I will never forget sitting in at Manipalooza in Denver, Colorado, watching him speak And he gave a four-hour lecture, and I will never forget looking up at the clock for the first time, and almost all four hours were over, and it felt like it was about 15 minutes. So for that reason, if no other, I cannot wait to have this conversation. We are very fortunate that we're going to be able to have Adrian back several times a year throughout the life of this podcast. So Adrian's going to be a central voice, so we're going to kick off here with him, and then we'll bring him back every couple of months to comment and expand and dissect on everything that he's hearing as we're engaging other speakers. So without further ado, please allow us to bring on the legendary Adrian Lowe. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today, Adrian. This is just a, it's a treat. And I want to start by just thanking you for what you've done for my patients and for my career and just reinvigorating really my journey as a physical therapist. Adrian, would you mind telling our listeners a a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey to where you got to where you are? Yeah, Tim. um, First of all, it's an incredible honor for me to, for you know, to say those words. I, I think very highly of you and many other therapists. You know, somebody asked me this past weekend at a course in Los Angeles, they asked me, how did you get into pain science? And it was an easy answer. It was, I failed. You know, I was brought up in a very traditional biomedical model of treating pain and thought highly of people that taught me and trained me, and I still do, but I very quickly figured out it didn't work. Um, I knew a lot about mechanics and joints and muscles and tendons, but I couldn't help people with pain, especially the suffering part. Luckily for me, I think the reason I'm here today is I had very, very kind people reach out to me. You know, the who's who of pain science have just extended incredible acts of kindness towards me. You know, I spend a lot of time with David Butler, Arbor Mosley, Louis Gifford. Um, I've had some really cool people spend time with me. And so I'm a physical therapist by training, and I love it. And I think the world of physical therapy, I think it's so cool to be non-pharmacologically trained and to help people. But my world has taken me toward the world of neuroscience um, with research work. But bottom line is I'm still a PT, and I and I look at pain from a neuroscience perspective and um, teach all over the world, for that matter, do lots of research with our team, and um, just trying to make a little change in every person's life that we meet. I think one of the things that is... I've been most struck, and I think uh, in this world of we, I guess we call pain neuroscience, is that it's almost like we as physical therapists, I'm speaking more from the physical therapy perspective, we're finally getting back to our roots of caring and the humanity of what we do when we work with patients. It's almost like we got away from what we do best, and that was really listening and caring and motivating patients. And I, I, I wonder if, 
if that strikes you, if you've, you've kind of felt that way through kind of the numerous people you've touched through all your training through the years. Oh, absolutely, Tim. I mean, I think we all hear it. You know, again, not to keep doing this, but I, I recently was at a course in Minneapolis and a physician came up to me and he just shook his head and he just turned to me and he said, if we would just do what we were taught day one in medical school, you know, listen to people, be kind, do what we're supposed to do as human beings. And then he also mentioned, if we can just follow the first rule of medicine and that is do no harm, we will be levels ahead of it. I am with you here. I think if we go to to the basic things about caring, compassion, empathy, you know, kind of that whole thing, walking in the clinic in the morning, and the first thing you think is, you know, what can I do today to make somebody's life better? And it may be listening. It may be, you know, putting a hand on his shoulder or, you know, shedding a tear or just being there for them. As I tell people in the weekend classes quite often, you know, be the highlight of their day. Um, we often forget these patients live with pain every day of their life. It, it is hard. We cannot even fathom it. You know, we spend an hour in a room with somebody. We get to go to the next patient or lo and behold, we get to go home to our family and go for a run or go fishing or whatever it may be. They live with this every single day. And if we just remember that, the suffering, I think that's the thing that's missing in our profession is, you know, we understand the mechanics and we understand pain science. And right now there's a big push. You know, everybody understands pain neuroscience and pain neuroscience science. Knowing pain isn't treating pain. I met a, meet a lot of really cool, smart, young, up-and-coming guys that are so smart. They know every connection in the brain. They know every receptor and every um, neurotransmitter, but they don't understand suffering. And, and, and unfortunately, it probably comes with aging too. As you get older, the problem is you you, you tend to look back and think, wow, you know, there's that human nature. And, and so I'm with you, Tim. I 100% agree. If we would just think in the bigger scheme of, of helping a human being um, in any way, shape, or form. Um, unfortunately, you and I come from the same background, the strong manual therapy, mechanicalistic, technique-driven thing. But I think as we're getting a little bit older and we're, we're reflecting on our careers, you know, and failures, definitely failures, we, we have figured out it is sometimes as simple things the smile, the touch, the listening that is that is absolutely vital for what why, why it works. You know, it's so fascinating as you're talking there, Adrian. I, it, when I went through school, I mean, it, we were almost told not to um, engage in what would be considered, you know, psychology or almost talk or counseling therapy. It was like we had uh, bifurcated the body such that if we kind of delved into areas that were more deeper and personal that we were kind of practicing outside of our scope. I'm curious if that, I mean, your training is a little bit different from nationally, if you if you were ever exposed to that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I have gone to manual therapy conferences where I was almost verbally assaulted by people saying manual therapy starts at the one joint and everything below that is manual therapy and everything above that is psychology and you're a physical therapist. I think every one of our listeners that's listening here needs to understand and absolutely knows you've made many, many people better by the words you've spoken and had very little to do with the technique you just did. Now, it doesn't give you an excuse to be bad. I think the combination of being mechanically really sound and good and the patient can sense that through your hands, your skills, but how you talk to them is vital. So, you know, I, Tim, we always say this, if a patient walks in your clinic 
And the thing that stops him from moving or functioning is something that's stiff, a joint as an example. It would be physical therapy would be one of the professions along with osteopathy and chiropractic to manipulate, mobilize, and the patient says, wow, I can move better. If a patient walks in and they cannot turn their neck because the muscle is tight, I guarantee you physical therapists can help them, as can probably an occupational therapist, a massage therapist, an acupuncturist. But if somebody walks in your clinic and the reason they won't pick up a laundry basket is because they're afraid, they're nervous, they're anxious, it brings back bad memories of a, of a back that has been very painful, then why does that become psychology? Because I would argue that if I can take you through fear avoidance, teach you pacing graded exposure, and now suddenly you can lift a laundry basket and get on with your life, that is still physical therapy, occupational therapy, rehabilitation, if you will. And and this is that dualistic model that Rene Descartes gave us 350 years ago, that mind-body split. We If you change somebody's cognitions and they move better and they function better, it's called rehabilitation, it's called medicine, it's called physical therapy, it's called occupational therapy, chiropractic. So we have to re-examine what we're teaching. It is definitely not, trust me, I've met hundreds of psychologists on weekend seminars and they all sit there nodding their head going, absolutely. They totally agree. I've never had a psychologist come up to me and say, hey, you guys are overstepping your bounds because they are overrun. I mean, dare we even today mention the whole problem in this country with mental health, period. Um, so, so they deal with extreme cases, and if we can, uh, you know, look at the musculoskeletal world maybe a little bit wider from a therapy point of view, yeah, absolutely. I, it's definitely not psychology, and they will tell us that. It just makes me wonder and kind of bewilders me a bit why we struggle so much to be an and profession. Why do we have to be an or profession? I, I don't understand that. I mean, why, why can't it be a skilled set of hands, a skilled set of therapeutic hands with a kind listening ear, with psychological psychologically informed practice with progressive loading. Why, why can't we be an and profession? It always seems like you have to either be manipulating or nothing else, mobilizing or manipulating, using the brain or using the body. Why can't we get a strong skill set across all these different paradigms and then craft that perfect intervention cocktail for every given patient we see? Yeah, it's a, we, Jeff, we, we should discuss this at length with some beverages. This is a long discussion we can have. It's ironic that Tim Flynn is, is part of this process because, um, you know, Tim is an icon in the world of manual therapy, and we can probably have a long discussion. We need to remember a couple of things. Number one is, you know, I was trained by Maitland, and, and I have the Maitland approach ingrained in me. What we know now about pain was not available to people like Maitland, Suriax, um, Colton Bourne, etc. So we have to obviously pay respect and homage to that, that idea. But as we explore and grow, I do think we're going to see that pain science is hands on, not hands off. As we always say that, you know, every joint has a brain. All the remapping work in neuroplasticity tells us the brain has to be involved. So what do we do? We put somebody's face in a hole on a plinth and say, you know, face down the hole and we're going to work on your backpack here and we'll tell you when it's time to get up. The neuroscience says the brain has to be involved. And so I'm, I'm desperately trying to make people understand that you know, manual therapy can be so much more if the brain gets involved, because I think manual therapy is a graded exposure to palpation or movement or, um, you know, physical touch, if you will. So there's 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 way to go. Um, why are we there, Jeff? It's it's history. It is people protecting what they know. We all did that. You You protect the thing you know and that you know right now. There's a change. I do think there's a change. I know for a fact 
there are more and more of proposals going into CSM every year that, you know, pain science is hands on, not hands off. Um, we have a beautiful paper that was just accepted by Journal of Manual Manipulative Therapy where myself, Louis Puntadora and Joe Nice um, actually wrote a paper on pain neuroscience merging with manual therapy. And I know Tim has been involved with Louis Puntadora on a similar paper. So th there's a shift that's occurring and I think it will take the next generation. You know, the old manual therapy schools were, I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody, was kind of the old secret handshake club. And it was very dogmatic. And we did what the guru said. But there's a change happening, though. I, I do see more positive in this regard. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple things you said there, Adriana. Um, I was thinking about how, you know, we often, and I'm one of the key voices against the overutilization of spine surgery. And yet you understand that if someone has created and spent literally a decade to learning a specific procedure um, that has been done at all hours of the day or night, lack of sleep, hundreds of thousands of dollars invested, you know, you're going to have a belief in that system that is uh, quite large. It's very personal. It's, it's, it's whether, you know, you, you pay the bills, et cetera. So, you know, we often look at the spine surgery world and we see all the conflicts of interest that are rampant and you can step back and say, okay, this is partially why they developed because of that. You know, there's so much invested in doing this. I would say that similar, if you look at how we grew up in the manual therapy world of going through five levels of training and thousands of dollars in order to get this uh, level that you are vested in that 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 model because you have put in a lot of time and so anything that perhaps challenges that uh, in some ways can be threatening so I think we're on a much lower scale but we I think come from very similar uh, or we, we, we are informed similar or biased in a similar way is the word I'm looking for. You know, I'd love the other thing I wouldn't mind. I'd love to that comment that Jeff made about and versus or. I do find it fascinating again that we always and now we're talking kind of PT uh, level, but we have always seem to be in camps. You know, we, we create tribes of, <laughs> that make us. You know, I'm from this camp or that camp, and boy, it happens within our profession and now outside. And uh, I, what I like about the pain world that it, the tribes have to come together because this is transdisciplinary. These things that we're doing need to be cross-pollinated across multi-professions. Uh, Absolutely, Tim. The, the, you know and I know that the future of pain and treating pain is going to be inter- and multidisciplinary. There's no doubt about it. Pain is too complex. Maybe I'm going to alienate some people now, but I tell every physical therapist, you need to go to your state conference every year that you, 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 you owe that to your state conference. You need to go to one national PT conference and for the love of God, go to another professions conference and make a list. This year, I'm going to go to a psychology conference. Next year, I'm going to a diet conference. Next year, after that, I'm going to a neuroscience conference. We got to learn from other people. And I hate to say it again, but I mean, come on, guys, you've been around. We CSM every year, great stuff. I love CSM to death, but it's the same stuff. We got to learn from other people. Pain is bigger than one profession. 
um, you know, we build these barriers and we, we talk about, you know, the fights between PTs and chiropractors and PTs and acupuncturists. And it looks like everybody's fighting with everybody. And it goes back to what you said before, Tim. Um, you know, I was sent for a, a really cool little quote by Mark Cargill a, a couple of years ago where he said, you know, it was a quote that's well known out there that if your salary depends on you understanding something, it's going to be very hard to change it. We need to understand that. I mean, I work with surgeons every day and, and you know, we have knockdown drag outs, but as long as it pays the bills, people are not going to shift. But, you know, who's losing here are the people. As we're listening here today, we're sitting here and we're having the comfort here of listening and talking to each other, having a great time. But 72 people are dying today from prescription opioids. You know, I am tired of PTs coming to me and getting offended. You know, you said this and get over it. It's not about you. It's about the patients. You don't have the right to be upset. You don't have the right to be offended when I talk about something you're doing. There's a bigger problem here. You know, we're sitting here today talking manual therapy and PT, but this is serious stuff. And we need to get this. Needs, you know, people need to get on this program or get the hell out of the profession because we got to move forward. Yeah, you're, you're speaking in the choir. Absolutely, Adrian. And that I think it is that level of analysis that finally I feel like we're getting we're looking beyond ourselves. We frankly were so insular have realized it's not about us. And we, I love what you said about forcing ourselves to go outside of our box from a conference level, but also within our communities, going outside of our comfort zone in, in, in speaking. And I'll just share a quick uh, aside on the opioid. Uh, epidemic. The when it came to um, the book Dreamland, uh, one of the book clubs in our neighborhood uh, read it, and it was stunning. You know, out of a a group of twelve, uh, my wife shared with me that four people in that group had been affected, either family or friends of family, by a death from an opioid. You know, this is a, in you know our community in northern Colorado. You know, and it just shows how how widespread this epidemic is, and you know we have to get our head out of the sand. And I mean, Adrian, I I, I still have goosebumps from your comment a moment ago. That emphatic, it's not about us. I mean, if you're letting your ego and, and your opinions in any way cloud your ability to serve that patient, I mean, shame on you. And, and I, I really appreciate you just saying it that openly and that honestly. Who is ultimately suffering as we battle and as we infight and as we protect territory and as we, who ultimately is suffering and suffering badly? I mean, Tim just gave a great stat there. This is serious serious business. Your advice about attending a different healthcare professionals conference is invaluable. I think it's something you see very rarely. And I think it's something that would be a huge step in forming some of those key bridges. Along those lines, as I discuss these concepts um, in courses that we teach, and we bring up this idea of, of not treating you know, non-mechanical pain with mechanical intervention, something that hasn't worked historically, isn't working now, and won't work in the future, and, and bringing in more of that, that classification-based cognitive functional therapy approach, a lot of the questions that come up are, Jeff, who else do I need on my team? So for a clinician in a given community, when you start engaging in this space and, and being willing to be there and measuring fear and measuring catastrophizing and measuring depression and, me and measuring anxiety and, and starting to actually be willing to get in the weeds, 
Who, Adrian, would you really recommend that clinicians reach out and form good relationships with? I mean, psychologists, other healthcare professionals, and please pretend as though there's no barriers in an optimal community. <laughs> yeah, in an optimal community, who would a PT have really strong relationships with so that when things went a direction that maybe did get outside of our bounds, those relationships could be leveraged? Wow, Jeff, um, how much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you want. Um, I- yeah. Yeah, I you know I did a talk about this last year at CSM, and I I basically ended up with it with no no disrespect with a, I have a dream speech to the audience, um, and my dream was for a physical therapist to build an interdisciplinary multidisciplinary program either under their own roof in their own clinic or in the community. Um, we can create a bubble, if you will, over the town. I know in big healthcare systems, multidisciplinary means it's in one building or one, one structure, um, but those are synonymous with a lot of cost and very difficult access and very compre- comprehensive programs. So to answer you, the first thing I did is I showed people what the average salary is for these people. Um, we always think, wow, no, I could not afford hiring a psychologist or a, a dietitian or a whatever it may be. It's not that far to reach. So if I made a wish list today, I'm a physical therapist. I have a, I'm a single therapist in one clinic and I'm going to expand my clinic. The next person I would hire would be a PT assistant. Um, I truly believe in ancillary help. This is one of my things that really bothers me about our profession. We have created the PTA. I think highly of them because some of the cognitive stuff we're doing can be very well done pacing greater exposure exercise by having ancillary help that's number one then if i had to go further i it's kind of the low-hanging fruit though jeff because we live in the united states and people living in the united states will listen to this quite a bit i think um, we have the privilege at most high-end grocery stores for example have dietitians on staff we have reached out to dietitians at local grocery stores high-level grocery stores And by the way, the service is free. I have contacted managers and I've asked them, you know, can I send patients there to meet with your dietitian? And it was a simple thing about absolutely they're here for the community. And so, you know, that's an easy one. Should you look at a personal trainer um, as an example that can take the non-skilled medical approach to help them? Psychologists, the reason I'm a little hesitant here is my psychology friends will tell me, Adrian, there's not enough of us. Very, very, very few specialize in pain. But as all of us know, that pain is is influenced by social structure, right? So Sally sees you, she has fibromyalgia, but she's struggling with a relationship with her husband. She can see a psychologist that works on the relationship part, say, um, more of a family counselor, if you will. I think one of the cornerstones of our approach has to be a really good, well-meaning general practitioner. The old Norman Rockwell family doctor that was always there to, to in the community would be phenomenal as a gatekeeper. And then we can expand out. You know, you can talk about a massage therapist. You can talk about a yoga instructor. You can talk about a local YMCA aquatic program. This can extract Obviously, the higher end stuff is the surgeon that you get to know really well locally. He's brilliant. He he only does surgery on people that desperately need it, that screens really well. I mean, we can go from bottom level up, but the low-hanging fruit, though, Jeff, it would be ancillary help in your clinic. I think dietitian would have to be somewhere. Psychologists can help with the more complex cases. I do like the fitness idea of a a, a personal trainer that can help um, where maybe it's not as expensive, but moving on with life. Those are easier, lower hanging fruits. Yeah. So that's interesting to hear the psychologist thing. You you make sort of a 
an unfortunately fair point that they don't have they don't have the numbers, do they? Um, not not unlike so many problems, they don't they don't have enough people to handle this, and the training's not on board. I don't want to say it surprises me. I, I guess as we look to reach out and we look to we know this has to be multidisciplinary, so we've accepted that. And I, I really want to make sure you chat about that upcoming conference um, that you guys have in June that indeed brings in that multidisciplinary approach. So we know if we're gonna if we're gonna make a dent in pain, if we're gonna legitimately tackle this ongoing absolute freight train of an epidemic that's taking place right now, we know that we have to reach across the aisle. We are just starting to really understand this in physical therapy. This appreciation that when people show up and what is really on board is high levels of fear and, and, high, and high levels of catastrophizing and significant things that are, that are non-mechanical that need to be addressed to help them to move better and feel better. We're, we're realizing this is there. What kind of education is going on on the other side of the aisle? So as we go to reach across, as we know we need to do, are, are, are physicians getting this education? Are, are they understanding what is driving persistent pain? Do you, do you know what the other healthcare professionals are getting so that when we go to have those conversations, we have some idea of what our starting point is? I mean, are they in their infancy as well? Are they ahead of us? Are they behind us? How can we know sort of where to start that conversation? Well, Jeff, it, I mean, obviously it's very hard. We're going to generalize here because we've seen both. I have met some of the most amazing physicians along my path that have an absolute great understanding of pain sciences and and biopsychosocial approaches. But the bigger scheme is the most successful pain scientist to ever live was Dr. Patrick Wall, Melzack and Wall, who gave us gate control. Um, Professor Wall passed away in 2001. Before he passed away, he was at the World Congress of Pain, I think it was, and, and don't quote me on that one. Um, but anyway, they brought the smartest people on the, on, on the planet together. So they had the physicians, every different discipline, the rheumatologists, the endocrinologists, the immunologists, everybody stand up. They got 20 minutes to say, what will I do with somebody in chronic pain? And they all gave their speech. And then at the and they ask him, what did you think of it? And my, this, his quote is amazing. He looked at all of this and he said, if we're so good, then why are our patients so bad? Mm-hmm. And, and this gets reflected very well, if you know, and you guys are aware of it, the medical model for pain is flawed. It is very old. Air, I say in medicine, we look at pain pharmacologically as, as a pharmacology issue, um, which has its place. Biopsychosocial models are not to be found in residences and fellowships when it comes to, to PT, but also in medical school. Um, we now are going to have a major influx of physician assistants coming in. My colleague, Corey Zimney, and I are actually getting ready to run a really cool clinical trial where we're going into PA schools, physician assistant schools, and teaching them pain neuroscience. This is moving into that field, but it's not there yet. Dare I say it, there are individuals that are amazing, and I've met them, and I I think the world of them, Um, but in general, if, if medicine is so good, then why are our patients so bad? If physical therapy is so good, why are our patients so bad? So everybody should be looking inside of them. And by the way, Jeff, if coming back to the psychology thing, I was recently at the Cleveland Clinic and, and I, um, I met two pain psychologists and I went up to them. I do this every time and I ask them, where do we find you? And they said, we're not to be found. There are so few of them. This is a problem. I cannot tell you every weekend that I find a psychologist. I mean, I buy them lunch. I sit and talk to them. I want to get to know you. Tell me where we find you. By the way, they're not to be found. They're very hard to find. You know, my physical therapy friends always say, 
go to the phone book, find one that's within five miles of you and call them, have lunch with them, ask them, what do you do? How can I help you? How can you help me? I, I need help. Medicine, psychology, and, and that's the other thing. David Butler taught me years ago in psychology, they're very good, very good um, at psychosocial, but don't understand biology. We are very good at bio, but not psychosocial. And so even psychologists are coming to the pain classes a lot because they, they want to learn the bio side of pain. Because there is a biology. There is a biology behind pain that, that needs to be understood. Yeah, very well stated, Adrian. And yeah, just so many thoughts going through my mind on that. And I feel like um, we need to have some regular conversations on this podcast with you. But before um, we wrap up, I'd really like to uh, have you speak um, just about... You, we talked a lot about multidisciplinary, and you guys have a conference coming up. Uh, and just from what I saw, it looks, looks awesome. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Annually, we have a pain conference that we host in Minneapolis. This year, it will be June 9, 10, and 11. And our conference, although the vast majority attending are physical therapists, because we have our disciples following us, um, we are getting more and more physicians, physician assistants, nurses, um, psychologists attending. This year, we are focusing on neuroplasticity. As everybody knows, the, the changes in the brain, the structural and functional changes in the brain are now well documented, is strongly correlated with somebody's pain experience. And the cool thing about neuroplasticity is we can alter the brain very, very quickly. Talking about concepts like virtual reality, mirror therapy, graded motor imagery, sensory discrimination, there is an amazing amount of research that we can show that we can alter some of the most complicated pain states like CRPS, phantom limb pain, etc. So um, the conference is designed to be open doors. Anybody can come. We're not turning anybody away. It's, it's, we're going to learn from each other. So we have different disciplines presenting and also attending the conference. Excellent. And when and where is that conference, Adrian? It is June 9, 10, and 11 in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the Hilton. And they can obviously go to our website, ispinstitute.com or evidenceinmotion.com. They would have it on their websites. Um, and you can even just, just Google our conference, um, ISPI Pain conference 2017 thank you so much adrian for sharing that and i hope that, that a lot of folks seek that out because at the end of the day you know i say this at every low particularly low back courses because it seems like the the literature is a little more robust in that area this paradigm is so damn exciting for no other reason of which there are tons then the fact that this has been an area i love that when you started off this show adrian you spoke to how you got into this because you failed and I think that is such an honest and refreshing perspective because the reality is the attempt to treat non-mechanical pain mechanically, the attempt to treat people who have these maladaptive beliefs and these issues, trying to treat them through manual therapy and exercise has been overwhelmingly unsuccessful. <laughs> I mean, if we were going to admit it, right, it has been extraordinarily unsuccessful and likely will be. And that has led to not only a failure on behalf of the patient, which has been very evident, as you say, if we're so good, why are our patients so bad? But I think it's led to tremendous burnout in psychological detriment on behalf of the operator because you're trying to get people better and they're not responding. And I think what you have done and what you in the boat of incredible colleagues and leaders that you guys have have done is you're showing us a way 
to manage at least fairly effectively, certainly more effectively than we have historically, an area that has up until now contributed to a lot of pain on everybody's behalf, ongoing pain for the patient, and a lot of psychological issues on the operator not being able to have success. I mean, do, do you see that there could be a light here that some of these patients and presentations that have contributed to burnout and frustration, we're finally finding a way that we're bumping these people forward. I mean, in some ways, Adrian, I am most excited about that. Absolutely, Jeff. You know, I, I'm an old guy. I've been doing this for many years, trained by the best people in the world. And I'll tell you this, I haven't enjoyed therapy like I do right now. I haven't enjoyed medicine like I do right now. I am. I had a really cool thing happen to me recently. I had a director of a rehab hospital that we teach pain sciences. All their people basically get mandated to go for our program. She came to me at a conference and she grabbed me and she said, I need to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we did something wrong. She said, I've got a big problem in my clinic because of you. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so bad. She said, three years ago, people walked in our clinic with CRPS and the therapist would point to each other. It's your turn. I got the last one. What's yeah. now happened since they've learned about neuroplasticity and all this really cool stuff that we've learned about pain, they now fight and say things like this. You had the last one. I get this one. For me that day, I got, like you said, goosebumps. I got goosebumps that day and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how cool. You know, years ago, I was fortunate enough to take a road trip with Lorimer Mosley out to Lincoln, Nebraska of all places. And we were driving and I turned to Lorimer and I asked him, hey, Lorimer, why are you doing so much research on CRPS? And his quote is epic. He said this, if we can figure out how to treat the most complicated thing first and then retro engineer backwards, um, we're going to make a huge shift. And he made the point, he said, why are we spending so much money on low back pain, acute low back pain? We should be looking at the worst things and help them first. And, and so I think about that. And I will honestly now tell you that with CRPS, which we think may be the pinnacle of pain, that's when things really go bad. And we now look at a condition like that and go, not a problem. Come on in. We cannot wait to see you because we have so many cool things that we can try. Does it mean we're 100% successful? No, no approach has it. But if we look at the, the treatments, we are, we're getting better. And to go back to your question, Jeff, it is exciting. When you see on your schedule there's a patient with CRPS coming in, complex regional pain syndrome, it's not the dreaded, oh, my goodness, it's one of those days in the clinic. It's one of those, oh, my goodness, I get to try this really cool stuff, and I'm so excited you're here. And it has to permeate the patient because they often get the opposite. They get the eye roll, the, the oh, my goodness, here's this patient again. And it is stunning. You know, I can tell the audience, we, we just before we came on, on air, I mentioned a patient of ours that started our conference two years ago. She's got CRPS. She was our keynote speaker to tell her story. People were crying in the audience. And we just got a beautiful picture of her playing college softball with an arm that clothing couldn't touch two years ago. And I told you guys, we're going to interview her as part of our podcast because people need to hear there is hope. There is absolutely hope. And it goes for the patient, but also the therapist. I get so many older therapists, experienced therapists, is what I should say, come up to me and say, this has given me a new lease on life in clinical practice. Yes, and I think um, I really feel like that's the burnout in medicine as a whole, where when you are starting to realize the tools that you have are not effective and the burnout across medicine largely is people that are in pain, whether that pain be expressed in the musculoskeletal system, whether it be expressed in um, behaviors that, that are not healthy, whether it be expressed in challenges that they're having throughout their life and relationships, not having the tools 
have created burnout. So I, I really think of pain even broader that we're going to, we're at the tip of the iceberg in really reforming our really dysfunctional way we've done medicine in America. So with that, Adrian, I, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today. And if you wouldn't mind, just uh, uh, let folks know how to how to find you and your and and ISPI, and that would be most awesome. Oh, absolutely. Um, again, thank you guys for having me. I, you know, I can talk about this all day because this is a passion. Our company is International Spine and Pain Institute. We're just a group that of therapists mainly that dedicate to the world of pain science. Our website, ispinstitute.com. You guys can find us there. My email is on the on the homepage. Email us. We've got resources there. And um, if we can help, that's why we're here. Awesome, Adrian. Thank you so much. And we look forward. I swear, it's a cruel joke that at Manipalooza, you're going to be in the other room while Tim and I are, are in the adjacent <laughs> rooms. I, I, I won't. They did that to me last time. And, uh, so I won't be able to see you talk. But, but luckily, I've been able to see it numerous times. Um, if anybody has not, you need to. And so hopefully anyone that has a chance. Are you going to be with Louie? Is, is there going to be a bit of a combo over there, Adrian? Is that what's going on? Yeah, we have um, four of our instructors, myself, Louis Puntadura, Brett Nielsen, and Jess. We're doing a session on neuroplasticity and pain. But it's, it's neuroplasticity in the clinic, which means it can be done in 10 minutes or less. Got to do above eight so we can charge for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that is going to make for some seriously stiff competition for Tim and I um, in the other room doing a cervical thoracic junction. So, um, Adrian, thank you so much for everything you've done, for the new lease on life you've given so many clinicians, including myself, and just for the constant leadership. To say I tip my hat is to dramatically understate the case. So thank you so much. And we can't wait to have you on again. ISPI sponsors the the podcast. So we're going to bug you every now and then to pop back on. Wow. What a fun conversation. We're going to have Adrian as a regular guest. And if you have questions or comments, please engage on social media with Jeff or myself or at ISP Institute. And we'll add those questions to the conversation the next time uh, we have Adrian on. I want to thank Adrian for a wonderful presentation and conversation. And we'll look forward to seeing Adrian. I'll see him later this uh, April at Manipalooza, uh, which will be in Denver, Colorado, where he'll be speaking, as he mentioned, and Jeff and I will be doing some teaching. I really encourage everyone to get out to the the pain conference. It, I've been to the conference twice. It's phenomenal. And the multidisciplinary nature of it, it re-energizes you. There'll be some great guests and we'll be having a number of the guests there on our podcast coming up in the future. And once again, thank you for taking the time to listen to Pain Reframed. Reach out to us on social media at ISP Institute or Jeff and I on Twitter or at the evidenceinmotion.com blog. Have a most awesome day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.